Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. We hope you are having or had a wonderful weekend and make sure to go and check out the first part of the series we're going to be continuing today, which is on gospel apologetics. Uh, Dr. Woodward, I'm looking forward to getting into this series. How are you? I'm feeling fit as a fiddle. I'm feeling great today, and I hope that everyone listening to our broadcast is feeling equally great. If uh, some of us are struggling with the COVID nasty uh, little bug or something else, um, you know, may God's grace and goodness and rapid healing be upon them. Amen. So it's it's uh, some it's something to be he- he- heading into a busy fall, you know, like we're in the thick of it right now, and in the midst of our busyness, it's be- it's uh, wonderful to, to be able to pull aside and look at God's truth uh, beaming out of the, the spectacular um, verses of Scripture and also the things that He has made in nature, from comets down to uh, the corpuscles inside us, you know, the Everything from uh, Bonobo and the um, great uh, galactic clusters all the way down to DNA's individual makeup. You know, everything is shouting design. Everything is shouting the excellence of God's creation. And um, it's it's people who mess things up. I can cut oh, to yeah. the chase of today's uh, program. So it's uh, it's been a lot of fun to map out this journey of seven weeks that we just you know were able to give an outline form last week, and also to re- report an amazing breakthrough uh, in the world of science. So anytime you're ready for me to share that, I'm primed to go. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. I know you mentioned it. Yep. Well, let me just jump in and just give you the headline news. The journal of theoretical biology, which is one of the most important peer-reviewed journals. In other words, science journals have experts. They have, uh, and this is a kind of a blind peer review process. Usually the guy who submits a paper has no idea who is actually, you know, reviewing his paper for accuracy and for other aspects of scientific plausibility and, and cogency. And then also, uh, the person who is reviewing the paper doesn't know who is submitting it. So it's kind of a double-blind uh, process. Well, the reviewers, the, I should say the peer reviewers of the Journal of Theoretical Biology, and again, this is one of the most important of all journals in biology today. It is rated in the top 25. Some people put it in the top 10. But there is a paper that was just published physically published September, late September, and it was actually online published in June. And this article, written by two European scientists, actually explicitly defends intelligent design. Wow. Through through the study of fine-tuning of biological systems from the largest scale down to the most minute details and, and nuts and bolts. Of, of intelligently designed microsystems, and never before in the history of intelligent design 
has a major journal published uh, an article that argues forcefully to the conclusion that biology was designed. And I just think we need to celebrate this moment and be equipped when people say, oh, you guys never do peer-reviewed research. That's one of the quickest um, put-downs or jabs that is thrown at intelligent design theory. And now we can come back and say, well, what about the paper that was published in 2020 in the Journal of Theoretical Biology? And the two scientists, um, Steinar, and I hope I pronounced his last name correctly, Thorvaldson, and if you're, right, if you're able to jot a note here, it's uh, Thor, like, you know, the pagan god Thor, god of thunder, and then Valdsen, V-A-L-D-S-E-N. He's a professor of information science at the University of Tromso in Norway. Uh, it's like an Arctic circle. It's so far up the north tip of, of Norway, Steiner Thorvaldsen has actually not only presented intelligent design, but he was part of the committee that invited me to speak in Norway four years ago. So I had, I had the privilege of riding around in a car as we went to lectures. He would speak, I would speak. And Steiner Thorvaldsen is the co-author uh, with another biologist. Uh, and he's a professor, actually, of mathematical statistics at Stockholm University. And I believe you pronounce his name Hossier, H-O-S-S-J-E-R. Uh, -S -S but I think they pronounced the J like an I. But uh, anyway, Thorvaldsen and Hossier co-authors have drawn on the work of many others, but if they brought a statistical analysis that's brand new, it's fresh, it's insightful, it's fruitful, and the result is just a monumental bombshell victory for intelligent design. I think this is something we can celebrate. Oh, absolutely. And, and did you come across that at Evolution News? Yes. And matter of fact, oh, there cool. are two articles that are still trending, so they're if you go to evolutionnews.org, our favorite you know, resource uh, on the Internet for news and views pertaining to this Darwin versus design ongoing debate. So Thorvalds and uh, Halsier paper has actually um, got two. And I think if you go back, there may be three or more articles that discuss it, but two major articles. Uh, one of them is called Breakout Paper, and Journal Theoretical Biology Supports Intelligent Design. And then another article is entitled, Despite Darwinist Cancel Culture, Intelligent Design Has a Breakthrough in Biology Journal. So there are at least two major articles discussing this, and, and this, is, this is something to be featured you know, in anybody, anybody's conversation. Near the, you know, the get-go, I mean, right when we start talking about design, we can actually just describe it as being discussed in the major journals seriously. No longer do they just like, you know, with a flip of the wrist, toss it to one side. So kudos to the Journal of Theoretical Biology, and they have actually had to print a disclaimer saying we are not a, a you know, pr proposing intelligent design as a journal. We just felt that this article was of such importance and cogency that it deserved to be published. Well, when, wow. one, when one major journal does that, it ha it's like a crack in the face of a glacier. Uh, it, it encourages further cracks and further, you know, because you just cannot stand against a movement that has power, facts, and analysis behind it. And so God, as we have seen all along in Romans 120, 
the things that he has made give testimony to his reality, to his not just that he barely exists, but he's brilliant. He's off the chart brilliant. And that's part of the joy in knowing him is that we have a God who's so beyond intelligence. He defines intelligence and then dribbles it down to each one of us as his gift. And I just think that science is such a great gift from God that it is actually kind of boomeranged upon the Darwin Doctrine here in the middle of 2020. So would you say it's time to party? Yeah, <laughs> Yes, I would. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everybody can break out whatever snacks they want to as they throw a party for Steiner Thorvalds and, and his friend. You know, well, you know what I need to do? I really, uh, you know, I, here in the next couple days, I, Nick, I should just call out to the people at Discovery Institute and say, how do you pronounce his colleague's name? <laughs> is, yeah. it, is it Hossier? Is it Hossier? So I will find that out, I promise, by next week's program. Oh, let's do it. So um, are we good to go into our first point of gospel apologetics? Yes, I have been excited about this. Very good. So three, two, one, go. The foundation, of course, of any approach, any discussion, any mention of apologetics is to tie it to what God has said in his word. And, of course, the Bible is so abundantly clear from Genesis chapter, really, 2 and 3, <clears throat> all the way through the end of Revelation, that God is all about creating those who can respond to him in love and have a relationship with him. God is all about real, deep, wonderful, um, exciting, and thoroughly um, invigorating relationships. And that's what I think is just the awesome thing about the Christian faith that, that causes it to just clearly stand apart from <clears throat> many other um, faiths, many other religious systems, and that it celebrates humanity, but it doesn't deify humanity. It points to the God who made humanity as the one who is the source of our being, who is the source of our sense of right and wrong, who's the source of all joy. The highest joys come from God. And so what we see here is that there is a, an implicit invitation right at the beginning of Genesis to enjoy God. So let's just cut to the chase. The key point that is the launch point of apologetics, looking at the Bible and knowing our own experience, is that although we are made for fellowship with God, we have failed him. We have missed the boat. We have not cleared the bar. We have, uh, to, to think of it uh, in terms of an exam, I mean, the exam is, is an F because there is no way that any human being during his or her life can say, I have always kept the law. And when you break the law, which we do all, you know, mentally, if not actually through our words and actions, uh, I would say daily, then if you compound those times 365 days a year, times, let's say, 50 or whatever number of years, we're talking tens of thousands, and that's a conservative estimate. And one little pinprick on an inflated balloon will cause the air to fall out, to, 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 to just you know jet out of that tiny hole, whether it's a tiny, literally, the a, a prick of a ordinary straight pin, or someone else may come along with a, um, a nail, let's say, 
whether it's a small, tiny, you know, nail that's used around the, uh, around the edge of a room to hold the carpet down, or a major nail that is uh, holding the beams together in a house. So if you take a, a, a small or medium or large nail, that will make the air go out of the balloon faster. If you take a tent peg, you know, everybody's seen, you know, tent pegs. If you take a tent peg and, and jam it into a balloon, that will cause the air to go out real fast. But all the pinpricks in a, in a balloon will actually let the air go out eventually as completely as the nails or the tent pegs. Whatever size hole there is in the balloon, the, the uh, balloon collapses. And that is uh, one way of viewing our problem with maintaining a perfect record with God. You can't do it because we're all heirs. We all receive from Adam and Eve that tendency to move away from God, to turn our back on him, to betray his standard, to choose that which is wrong, which is beyond that. It's evil, and quite frankly, many of the things we do are an abomination if we were to be brought to light. So God is kind to those who have sinned once they have confessed the fact that they, and this is point one of our seven points of apologetics, when you look at it from the standpoint of the Bible, also when you just gaze at it from the objective view of reality, just looking at what people might put forward as their righteous standards and then say, have you kept them? And so when the answer comes back, no, I haven't, we know we have failed. I'll repeat that standard uh, or statement once more. We know we have failed, and as C.S. Lewis says so brilliantly, in the opening section of Mere Christianity, a book that I'm, I'm actually studying with some uh, men, some businessmen and attorneys here in Tampa, starting this next month, and we're going to be going through that whole book, and I think that what they will be shocked, they'll be uh, enlightened and, and blessed, but they'll be, I think, a bit shocked is that they, leading men of law and business all over Tampa Bay, will be reminded once more, not just through the Bible, but through what C.S. Lewis says, that we have failed. And now, one thing about this admission of failure is that there are objective standards to begin with, and that implies or points to the reality of God himself. And this is called the moral argument. There is a very, very powerful series of arguments that have been put together uh, for the existence of God. In fact, there are probably upwards of 100 major and then the minor ones thrown in, over 100 arguments. But the top 20 were actually put together in a book uh, by Peter Kreeft. He's a now-retired philosopher at uh, Boston College. But in his book, Handbook of Christian Apologetics, he has arguments against God, that is, arguments for atheism in one chapter, and then the next chapter are the arguments for God. And he, he picks out, I think, like 14 or 15 of the most prominent atheist arguments, and then he discusses and explains why they fall flat. And then his chapter on the arguments for the existence of God has 20 arguments for God, and very prominent uh, near the beginning of that chapter is the argument from morality. And I'll just say that again. It's an argument from moral values or morality. And that is the understanding that there is a right and wrong down deep. 
uh, as William Lane Craig, the famous Christian scholar who loves to debate atheists. He has atheists for dinner. I'm just kidding, metaphorically. Okay. But he does regularly go out and just, he trounces. I mean, the victory, um, I think, academically speaking, is just amazing to watch. But he uses the same standard arguments, uh, some of them based on fine-tuning of the universe. That's like the article that we were talking about in the Journal for Theoretical Biology. And then he, he talks about the universe's existence itself. You cannot you know, bring out a universe into existence from nothing. You have to have a source, and God is that source that we understand, and that makes perfect sense. The atheist alternative is befuddled and just falls flat when it's probed. But then the third point, the third argument, that William Lane Craig always makes very clearly, and I think it's one of his more powerful arguments among the five that he presents, is that we know that there are right and wrong principles. And those right and wrong principles must derive from a conscious being, a thinking uh, moral arbiter that is a standard who's embodied in this personal being. And I'm discussing with one of my students at Trinity College, the great Plato, the philosopher Plato. And even Plato, as he writes about justice and some of these other values, uh, temperance, uh, self-control, and um, he talks about you know the, the, the love um, that, that people have for one another and the love of the good especially. And then he focuses on this thing called Ta'agathos in Greek, the good itself. And he considers that the highest source of every good that we have. And actually, it's pictured in one of his articles, one of the parts of his book, Republic, uh, one of the sections. He pictures it as the sun up in the sky, which sends down its rays to warm and to give growth and blessing to everything under the sun. And so that's his analogy, just as the sun shines down on everything, unless it's hiding away somewhere, lurking in a cave, uh, which is, he actually has a cave in that same section of his book, The Republic. Uh, But the sun shines down, and he didn't really have a good grasp on God. I mean, he was uh, formerly, his culture at least, was formerly enmeshed in deep paganism, I think he had broken away from that, and he was striving to understand what's the source of all thinking and all morality. And he saw it above himself as this beaming sun in the sky, the good. And so I think that what Plato dimly saw and tried to articulate is the same thing that C.S. Lewis explains in those opening five chapters of Mere Christianity, which, by the way, had a powerful impact in his day on the whole British nation during the opening stage of World War II. I think that's just a God thing. I think it's a shocking, it's a brilliant, wonderful, awesomely wonderful, shocking thing that God was, was beaming out across BBC radio to literally millions of Brits in the most a horrible crisis of that country's existence as they were being hammered by the bombs nightly in London and other parts of southern England. The, the Luftwaffe of Hitler was bombing the living daylights out of East London. And in the midst of that, and in the sweeping up the rubble from that, Lewis basically was uh, taking to the radio waves to call people to recognize their only hope 
their only source of forgiveness is the person of Christ who, who not only saw our failure, and that, that point one is, it really has two aspects. We know that there is a God uh, that, that, that exists from the moral law, and we know that we fail him uh, frequently, literally daily. And so that sets apart our mind and our heart are then set in tune with what we see from Genesis through Revelation. And that is that the, the diving down of God into humanity, and again, Lewis captures this in, in a picture of a, of a diver, a young man, let's say, I don't know, in the Philippines, Manila, let's say, in the harbor, and he sees something down deep in the water, and he, he takes a, uh, strips himself down to you know, minimal clothing, and he just he hits the water, and he's diving down, down, down. He grabs what he went for, and then he comes up with his lungs almost bursting, and he breaks the water with his hands holding uh, tight the, the dripping, precious thing that he had gone down to, to get. And that's a picture of Christ diving down from heaven into humanity, becoming a perfect man, living that perfect righteous life, never messed up once, not one second, not one nanosecond during his 35 or so years of living and even uh, leading a group, a band of men through uh, tough times for three years of controversy and pushback. And that's Christ who went and all the way falsely uh, charged with lying and deceiving the people. He was simply telling the truth when they said, are you the Messiah? And he said, I am. And after this, you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven to judge the world. And with that, the high priest ripped his cloak and said, what more testimony do we need? Put him to death. But he was just telling the truth. So did he mess up? No. He didn't, he didn't break the law once. And so that perfect law is then able to be put as, as a payment, the perfect replacement for our mess, our cesspool of yuck and filth and, and betrayal and sin. And so that's the beauty of the Christian message. That's the power of the gospel. And it's built on this very clear-cut foundation. And we call this point one in our seven-point whammy. We're going to go through points two through seven in succeeding weeks, and we want to just, um, just, just celebrate, celebrate really what God has done in the person of Christ, because this isn't just something that men made up. This is something that was portrayed brilliantly, both the sin problem, the failure of mankind. Um, we see that throughout the Bible. I think Romans 3 is probably the best place to go to expand on this point, where it says from head to toe, from our lips down to our feet, and everywhere in the middle, uh, our bodies and our minds and our hearts are given, at least periodically, to cycles and struggles with sin. And God says, I'm not going to leave you in that cesspool. I'm not going to let you just die. I'm going to come down. I'm going to dive into your, um, into your pond. I'm going to dive into your lake and I'm going to go down, and I'm going to reach you, and I'm going to pull you up if you'll let me take your hand. And all that re requires is a response. Yes, I've sinned. Yes, I've blown it 100,000 times, and I receive Jesus. I invite and open my heart to him as my king, my director, my, my president, my lord. 
and I and I uh, believe 100% that he died for every one of my sins, past, present, future, so that I can be released from this um, righteous uh, case that's brought against me, that he himself not, not only loves me and died for me, and thus he pleads our case and he successfully wins our case. Amen. Thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email at information at apologetics.org. And be sure to check out apologetics.org for constant updates and information on apologetics. Thanks for listening to The Universe Next Door. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in the universe next door.